as I mentioned as I mentioned at the beginning of the evening I'll talk a little bit about the cultivation of metta of I'm sorry of equanimity Equanimity is one of the four Brahma Viharas. Metta is usually listed as the first. So we have Metta, Equanimity, Upeka in Pali, Karuna, which is compassion. Metta, Karuna, Upeka. Metta, Karuna. Upeka and mudita. Mudita is joy or appreciative joy. Upeka is a balanced state of mind, uh, a steady state of mind, and a mind that is equanimous, is stable and non-reactive even in the face of adversity or unpleasant experience. This is perhaps equanimity's defining characteristic or claim to fame. It is what gives it the mark of an ideal, this ability to be steady, balanced, In a Tibetan tradition that I practiced in for a while, there was a lot of talk and imagery around uprightness, the the uprightness of, in that tradition, nobility. So with equanimity, there's this sense that we really don't get thrown off of our balance. We don't become ungrounded. The mind doesn't become dysregulated to use more clinical language. I'm outside the Porter Square uh, subway and commuter rail and it goes right by it's like 20 feet away and the windows are open <clears throat> it shakes the whole building so I, when I heard the train coming I paused the I muted the microphone so the mind stays stable balanced that the, the energetic core of oneself is is upright and I will often just say okay the mind body is okay not okay as in good enough but okay right totally okay equanimity is a core aspect of the Dharma it is essential I would argue it is essential to our development as meditators and to the Buddhist ideals of happiness, contentment, and awakening. 
And whatever other goals, intentions, values you all bring as individuals to your practice, without knowing what they are on an individual basis, I would argue that equanimity would directly support, in most cases, if not all, equanimity would support the development of those other goals. Equanimity exemplifies wisdom and also reflects the heart quality of kindness. Uh, this was more the fo- focus of prior talk, talks on equanimity that I gave um, in the past couple of months. Equanimity is both a mind state that matures over time and a mind state that we can and again I think should actively cultivate at all stages of our practice as a beginner uh, as someone who's been coming around for a while and uh, still feels very much like there's a lot to learn and for those who are maybe very experienced and have been coming around for a long time and and also have a lot to learn uh, we can always and should be always trying to cultivate equanimity. We should be, I think, not only thinking about it in the context of our Dharma practice, or let's say coming here on a Thursday night or going to the Dharma Center in the near future, um, but walking down the sidewalk when somebody brushes too close to us or when we see somebody who doesn't have a mask on and we think it's a setting where somebody should. We should be thinking about it and can, for example, use our relationships to cultivate equanimity in those moments that we're finding ourselves uh, judging another person. We see our preferences fueling, grasping and craving and we're becoming increasingly unsettled. We're not enjoying ourselves and And maybe moving into an internal space where we could be unskillful or unkind to the person or people that we're with, right? So there's... Equanimity is is not necessarily something that has to only happen on the cushion, as we say, uh, in the meditation hall, in a formal posture. Like, Like with many defining characteristics of the Dharma, we don't wait... We don't wait for it. We don't wait for equanimity. We cultivate it. Uh, Yet, at the same time, we practice patience with its course of development. We're not always equanimous. I think an underlying feature of practice, of Dharma practice, is that we don't wait for change or transformation. This is... For me, this is kind of the boldness or the radical edge of 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 deep practice. We we don't wait for change or the life we want. Uh, we seek it. Rather, we invest time, energy, even resources into cultivating the life that we want. Of course, you know, in parentheses here, we we're supposed to be doing that without craving or attachment. But that's another. That's another talk. This is a this is a particular view I want to make, uh, a particular point I want to make. Uh, this is an appropriate view that we hold. Uh, 
From a Buddhist perspective, this implies cultivating the mind that we want, cultivating the life we want, having the life we want, often includes cultivating the mind that we want. As the mind, we are told, is the filter through which we see and experience our life. Uh, this idea, that of the mind playing a profound role in our well-being, is reflected in the opening two stanzas of a core text called the Dhammapada, the, the path of wisdom. So there's a, there's a pair. The first, mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with an impure mind a person speaks or acts, suffering follows them like the wheel that follows the foot of an ox. And then the next stanza, mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with a pure mind a person speaks or acts, happiness follows like their never-departing shadow. It should be noted that the word act in these stanzas includes any mental activity, not just bodily behavior. Personally, over the years of my practice, I have found both the notion and reality or experience of cultivating the mind to be very empowering, very difficult too at times, but empowering, impossible. It has provided me from my early 20s with uh, a sense of engagement, uh, a real sense of something constructive, something constructive happening within my own mind and within my own body uh, and within my own life. So no matter what was going on in the world and in my relationships, in my career, uh, with my health, the Dharma provided a way of relating to my life, a way of relating to my mind, a way of relating to my body, a way of relating to my relationships, a way of relating to events in the world. So the Dharma provided a way of relating to my life. From this I have come to understand also the concept of path, quite literally, in the feeling of being somewhere and going somewhere, or otherwise being held in some kind of a container, uh, whether that be referred to as Sangha specifically or Dhamma more broadly. I had a place. Um, I belonged somewhere. And, and this, this, I think this sense of place or belonging uh, trumps or transcends a lot of the conceptual destinations we create for ourselves in our head. 
I want this kind of job, I want this kind of body, I want this kind of relationship, I want the world to be this way, I want my house to look this way. There's a, there's a possibility through Dharma practice of merging, in a sense, merging with the world as it is uh, and finding our place within that varied world of things that we may or may not prefer. I think this is very much the path of Dharma. And then we're still working to improve the world around us, which needs a lot of support, needs a lot of help, needs a lot of wisdom. needs a lot of creative behavioral responses rather than how the behavioral responses that are conditioned and normative the way they've been done. But in this moment, we can only be here with the conditions that are arising because they are already arising. That's why. Even when I didn't know where or how exactly I belonged in the world or how specifically I wanted to live my life, I knew I wanted to live as closely to the Dharma as possible as I defined it and continued to define it. Often this was enough. Sometimes it was, um, sometimes it proved to me to be more than enough. It was, it being the Dharma was the place to be because of how it accounted for and integrated everything else. This is what I feel like often, not always, uh, when I sit down to practice formally, that I have a place in the world. Um, And that place is not the couch I'm sitting on or the particular room. That place is comprised of a sense of presence, engagement, um, being with the stuff of my life without, uh, without fight, without struggle. I think there are maybe three or four concrete ways or categories that we could we could talk about cultivating equanimity. Maybe I could make that list a little a little longer. I want to name or point out, and I've sort of already done this. Uh, however, I want to name or point out two explicit ones. Um, the first is the cultivation of equanimity or or upeka through phrases or a kind of recitation practice. And a lot of you have practiced this way. Almost all of you have done this with some regularity with an, another of the Brahma Viharas, metta practice. And many of you have also done it with upeka or equanimity. And these these generative practices 
are intended to generate a particular mind state, like loving-kindness, equanimity, joy, appreciative joy, or compassion. So we're aiming the mind, we're inclining the mind, we're directing the mind towards something. I'll read a few common equanimity phrases, a variation of them, or or as I'll say it now, uh, I dropped into or sprinkled into our meditation practice earlier. What happens is what there is, and there is nothing else besides. This is, and has been for many years, for me, very instructive in my most, um, it's the metaphrase, it's, it's, the, it's the equanimity phrase, sorry, excuse me, it's the equanimity phrase that I, I like the most. It doesn't come from a Dharma teacher. It comes from a philosophy professor named Todd May. What happens is what there is, and there is nothing else besides. So why spend so much time and energy trying to make the present moment something different than it is? Right? Joy and sorrow rise and pass away. Things are just as they are. All things are impermanent. So we're being invited not to get in get into a conceptual tangle with life. I think of a, a book title by Andrew Olensky, which I think is Untangling the Mind. Right? A lot of the times when I think of equanimity, the word that comes to mind is peace. In renouncing or giving something up, the mind rests enough to be at peace. So we can cultivate equanimity through a recitation of phrases over and over and over again until the mind becomes concentrated and then eventually there's more of a clear comprehension or direct experience. The phrases somehow elicit a sense of knowing like, ah, clinging is useless. Clinging creates dukkha. I have to let friends, relationships, bodily sensations, thoughts, I I have to let them all go. I can't control or make things happen in the the timeline that I would prefer. I have to stop doing that. And sometimes we actually just stop doing it in that moment of of initial recognition. And we feel the mind grow sometimes unfathomably stable. So we can sit down and do formal meditation and recite these phrases, 
or we can sprinkle them in as we're walking down the sidewalk or we can drop a phrase in when we notice that we're reactive in daily life and there's some trigger uh, and maybe one of these phrases fits that context Do you hear noises and people talking in the background? Yeah? There's another way of cultivating equanimity that is, we might see it as different, but it overlaps. It's, it's happening at the same time that we're practicing phrases, but it's a, it's a place of permission to think, or I would prefer, or rather say, to reflect, to contemplate. <clears throat> And this is cultivation through attitude or intention. Using the knowing mind or removing one set of views and bringing in a wiser set of views and then applying the wiser lens to the situation that we're in. So as you hear me talk about the relationship between non-attachment and equanimity, you can, ref- you can reflect on how it is that you might uh, consider these teachings in your own life. And you can also simply relate to them as a, a fruit or a result of long-term Dharma practice. Um, for example... Um, the ways we might come to see things, situations, environments, ourselves, phenomena. Toward the uh, very near the end of the Satipatthana Sutta a uh, Satipatthana Sutta is the Sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness a question is posed as a way to as a way to present a conclusion to the preceding sections of the Sutta which consists of a step by step a guide to meditating with bodily sensations, feelings, and mind states. This is probably the core, almost, we would say, doctrinal uh, meditation guide to the Vipassana or insight lineage. 
Many of you are familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta and those instructions. Uh, for anyone who is more new to the Dharma, uh, those instructions will be made, uh, I think, very clear to you over time as, like I said, they form the basis of our meditation practice and they are reviewed consistently in through a variety of formats. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep coming back to them. So, at a certain place in the sutta, uh, a question is asked, and this question is very straightforward. Quote, and what is the noble truth of the path of practice leading to the cessation of stress? End quote. In other words, how do we become free of dukkha? The distress commonly associated with a human life. And the answer to this question consists of a recommendation to follow the Eightfold Path, uh, which is an integrated program of practice and contemplation laid out by the Buddha. Um, and following this, uh, there's a more mysterious or cryptic um, summation, if you will. Quote, and they, those who are awakened, those practicing those, those whose practice has led to awakening, and they remain independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a practitioner remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the Four Noble Truths. Remember, the Four Noble Truths lead to the alleviation of suffering. So an important message is found in the answer given in the Satipatthana Sutta. Understanding the Four Noble Truths in reducing suffering in our lives stems from non-attachment. Quote, non-not clinging to anything in the world, end quote. Implying any phenomena, any situation in our life. It's a tall order, and it's the whole of the Dharma. And it's simple. For anyone new to the Dharma, the meaning of this is probably not clear. And I think even for those who are more experienced, this teaching, which brings together much of the wisdom of the Dharma, remains often a bit of a koan. How do we not cling? Uh, and what is meant by this reference to anything in the world? Forgoing attachment, uh, Buddhist teacher Joseph Goldstein reminds us in what I think is his most recent book, uh, is, is one of the principal ways that we develop and strengthen equanimity. And uh, he provides a few examples of what this might look like, and I want to use some of his ideas as a guide uh, to continue this, this conversation. Retelling a story about his own teacher, and this, has got, this story has gotten passed around a lot, some of you might know this, referring to one of his main teachers, uh, the Thai teacher Ajahn Chah, Joseph Goldstein recounts a time when Ajahn held up a teacup and explained that the teacup should be related to 
as if it were already broken. The point is that we should, um, if you will, use the teacup to nourish ourselves and to enjoy pleasant drinks, uh, and we should take care of it. Maybe we wash it. <clears throat> Maybe we put it down carefully, right, on the on the marble countertop or whatever. If we really like the teacup, maybe we don't put it in the dishwasher, but wash it carefully by hand. However, if we consider its impermanence, the impermanence of the teacup, we know it might break the whole time. And we won't be disappointed if or when it does break. It's relatively easy to see this possibility in the example of a teacup, right? Or for that matter, most material objects. Even ones that you really like, even ones that are really expensive, even maybe ones that have sentimental value. Though if we are honest, we can each probably identify emotional hardships in clinging at the loss of certain material things in our own life. Things we lost or were broken or stopped working um, that resulted in temporary anguish. I can be slightly distressed if one, one of my favorite t-shirts gets to a point where it has enough holes in it, I can't reasonably wear it out in public anymore. Right Now, I'm not going to lose sleep over that, but I'm a little bummed out sometimes. Right? And that's just a t-shirt. However, what is ultimately plied, implied in this teaching, of which the teacup is but an example, is that we could and should, should's a strong word, from a Dharma perspective, we could and should aim to relate to everything like the teacup. Everything. Our career, our home, our relationships, our health, and ultimately the preciousness or uncertainty and um, uh, the preciousness of our uncertain and temporary human life. Imagine spending um, all summer in your garden planting flowers and picking the weeds and, and doing it as if a tornado could come through at any moment and tear the whole thing apart. Or that your landlord will at the end of the summer tell you that they're selling the house and you need to move out. If you're an artist, imagine 
spending two months on a painting that could fall and break or someone might steal. I hope no one steals your painting if you're an artist. Imagine putting all the time and energy and effort into building a close partnership with a colleague at work or with a lover or um, romantic partner. As if it has no chance of lasting. And I think, I think what the Dharma is asking of us is to be able to relate to situations that way without it turning to pessimism. And I think likewise that we know when the Dharma is coming through us, when those, those sentiments or those ways of seeing um, don't depress us or scare us, make us afraid. But rather, something has changed and as we orient the mind toward this way of seeing, we actually feel more free. And often what people report is that that personal freedom also frees up a kind of constriction or energy. And then we can put more into the painting, more into the garden, more into the romantic relationship, more into the career. And that's very interesting and not necessarily intuitive. We wouldn't have, if we were speculating how this might unfold, we probably, we might not think that would be the outcome. So it doesn't disconnect us necessarily from things or people. Yet at the same time, there's a certain space between us and them. And I think in a way we can be more whole in the context of that greater spaciousness. And from that wholeness, we can give. We're not holding back. We don't, or we don't have to hold back in the same ways that we might because of our, our conditioning, our learned ways of being in relationship to life, to those people, to that job. In the, also in the Dhammapada, it is written, the skillful, those who are skillful, the skillful renounce attachment for everything. The virtuous do not prattle with a yearning for pleasure. The wise show no elation or depression when touched by happiness or sorrow. This is a very provocative teaching, right? Very radical. To renounce everything is a bold teaching. The Dharma is, if anything, provocative. I think that's partly why I like it. It's not comfortable to our conceptual way of thinking, our habitual way of thinking. However, when we really understand what the Dharma is aiming for, and if we are willing to question everything and allow the mind to open widely, such teachings can be very freeing, at times completely liberating. When our way of seeing and wanting doesn't any longer have to be the way the world is, 
we are suddenly okay just as we are with the way things are. Things are as they are and nothing else. What has shifted at this point is that the way things should be has been removed in our thinking. We're not imposing ourselves on the world. And when this happens, there's a sense that we can handle anything because we are open to anything without resistance and aversion. Joseph Goldstein also offers an important reminder, which is that despite being surrounded, if you will, by all manner of broken teacups, broken teacups are everywhere now, right? Despite being surrounded by broken teacups, our non-attachment does not mean we cannot relate to life with a full commitment. I think that's important. It does not mean... um, we can't relate to our life with a full commitment. Referring to a popular and frequently referenced teaching in the Bhagavad Gita, he reminds us that action and outcome are related but separate. They're two different things, meaning we can approach our lives, goals, intentions, even healthy desires with full commitment, effort, time, energy, resources, yet all the while remaining unattached to the outcome. We understand simply that there are too many factors beyond our control. So we give up based on that logic, trying to control. Joseph says, when we act without attachment to the outcome, then our, reminds, then our minds remain peaceful no matter how things unfold. And lastly, and this is Joseph's third example, third point, he he says that he says that the relationship, he helps us see that the relationship between equanimity with non-attachment and not clinging has to do with how we attribute value and meaning to experience. As a general rule, our conditioning often includes the habit of evaluating ourselves based on the outcome of our actions, right? It's almost the only thing we look at when we're evaluating ourselves. Sometimes we even avoid doing things out of a fear that we might not succeed. This is very common. Most of us don't have to look beyond our own life to see this. Um, this is, of course, because we suffer if we don't succeed. We've all probably suffered because we've not succeeded at something. So in not taking risks in our life, we're trying to avoid emotional distress. What we miss out on, in turn, is quantitatively Uh, significant enough to be uh, innumerable and and, and, and qualitatively enough to erode our confidence and ability to move forward in our life. 
Joseph Goldstein, borrowing from a much-emphasized point in the, in the Dalai Lama's own teachings, reminds us that from a Dharma perspective, we should measure our actions not on conventions of success and failure, but on the motivations behind them. What if we moved through life, not based on how people would see us, or so that we avoid the feelings that we have when things don't go the way we want, and just maneuvered out of the purity of our convictions, said the truth, said what was really on our mind, asked for what we really needed, And in our practice, really, really let go of controlling experience, of pushing things away that are unpleasant. So this this model, this way of thinking about our life can help us approach our various projects, our desires, our relationships, while simultaneously relating to these different spheres of our lives as if they hold the possibility of freedom regardless of outcome. Because, they are, because doing so is going to untether us from a wrong, uh, from a misunderstanding, what the Dharma calls a wrong view. And the more and more that happens, the more free we are in a wider range of situations. In this way, the Dharma almost wants us to fail in the conventional sense of failure in order that we grow and mature and develop wisdom that leads to freedom. So... I will leave you, uh, we, won't, we won't talk about it necessarily, but in referencing an earlier point in the talk, I'll, I'll leave you with a, with, a, with a question to think about, um, you know, which is something like, what is, it, what is it like for you to consider relating to everything as if it's already broken? What happens when you reflect on this idea? Um, what, what does it bring up? You know, um, taking care of your apartment, taking care of your home, if you own a home. Saving money in a savings account, or if you have the means, investing. Knowing that you'll die and not be able to spend that money. studying the Dharma and waking up every day and practicing meditation 
because you want to help other people learn meditation, not knowing if you'll ever have the opportunity to do that. And hoping that you do have the opportunity. Exercising and training for some kind of event, as it, knowing that you'll, uh, you might not even finish or be able to sign up. Giving everything to your professional or romantic relationships, everything that you possibly can, while considering that that person or those people, plural, might leave you or die. What does that do for us? What does it do for our relationships? How do we show up differently? And I'm gonna, in my, in, in closing here, uh, I want to read the last passage from the Dhamma Pada one more time. The skillful renounce attachment for everything. The virtuous do not prattle with a yearning for pleasure. The wise show no elation or depression when touched by happiness or sorrow. <clears throat> 